Hello, this is Tracy with Little Things First Podcast. Jim Martin here with Little Things First Podcast. And uh, Jim was just reminding me that we are not being very good accountability partners by talking <laughs> about the little things that we've been doing every week and the little things that we've been learning. So we're going to start off with that because we think that's important for us to connect and just remind ourselves, right? Right. Because every day we're having growth opportunities and it's important that we also remember them. So Jim, do you have one? Did you I do. Learn? Yeah. I thought about this this morning. So um, I uh, have been listening to a podcast um, and um, it was uh, interviewing, it was talking about rejection, how to bounce back from rejection, which I'm not very good at. I just want to give up if I get rejected at something. And so I um, was listening to this podcast and this comedian was talking about her experiences and um, she decided that she was going to challenge herself, I think it was a couple of years ago, to get at least 100 rejections. That was her goal. She wanted mm. to get at least 100 rejections. I have heard and that too. And she actually exceeded that, but she also got more <laughs> acceptances than she'd yes. ever gotten before. Yes. So I thought that's going to be my new mantra. Yeah. You know, I want to get as many rejections as I can. I never really thought about that because the more rejections you get, the more likely you are. Well, you're putting yourself out there. Yes. And so she's never been further along in her career than she is now and had more exciting opportunities. But, you know, she got rejected a lot. And she also kept like a little journal that kind of talked mm -hmm. about how she felt every mm -hmm. single time she was rejected, what she learned. So it's a time, it's an opportunity to bounce forward. Very interesting because it ties in with mine also. And the thing that I, little thing that I have learned about this week that's helping me make, take steps forward is to take massively imperfect action. Mm, say you, more. You do not wait to be perfect. Mm. You just take action. And you give yourself permission by saying massively because you're going to be taking big action. And then throwing the word in there imperfect just gives you permission to do the best you can and not worry about it being perfect. Now, maybe my boss wouldn't like me to say that because they might want me to have a little higher perfection in there. But uh, yeah, that's my that was my thought this week is I am giving myself permission to take massively imperfect action now. Excellent. Okay. That sounds great. Okay. Well, hopefully you as our listener have a little learning from this week or the last couple of days that you can reflect on and feel free to share it with us. We'd love to hear about it. We would love it because we're all in the business together here learning from each other. So let's go ahead and Jim's giving me a little symbol like maybe his earphones aren't working. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but... Plugging it in? Plugging it in? No, I think Jim. Maybe that's the set you don't like. You have another set up with Checking that helped. Jim, are you there? Yeah, okay, great. Does that make you happier? Yeah, okay, good. Perfect. Excellent. Okay, we're going to be calling Brad Smith today. Is that right, Jim? Yes, Brad. All right, let's do it. Hello, good morning, Brad. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Hi, Brad. This is Tracy. Hi, Tracy. How are you? We're so good. Thanks for joining I'm us today. To hear that. You bet. Happy to be here. Very good. Well, we have a few questions for you. And the first of all, we want we haven't introduced you yet. So we just said we're calling Brad and we just dialed. And so uh, <laughs> will you tell people who are listening about yourself? 
Well, um, I uh, live here in Ogden, Utah. I was, uh, I'm an attorney here in town for many years. I was on the Ogden City uh, School Board. And then in uh, 2011, I became the superintendent of Ogden School District and uh, served in that till 2014. And then I was two years down at the state as the state superintendent. And uh, now I'm back to practicing law here in Ogden. Very nice. Not a typical path. You know, the whole like law, school board, (laughs) superintendent. State superintendent law, quite quite a cycle. Yeah. Tell us more about it. Yeah, not exactly a, a linear path. That, no. that, that is certainly true. Um, you know, I I um, in two thousand six, Ogden had um, just passed a large uh, school bond. Um, they'd had one that had failed, and then they just passed another one. It was the largest in Ogden's history, um, $105 million bond. And I was very concerned about how it was being utilized, just those kinds of general governance concerns. But I hadn't really done anything about it. Um, I had a neighbor who called me up one afternoon um, I worked with him in church things and he was a client, a local business person and, um, they live my next door neighbor. And so we had children that were the same age and he called me up and said, um, I need you to go down to the county clerk's office and register to run for school board. And I'm like, well, I've never expressed any, any indication that I'd ever do any such thing. And he was quite persistent. And I finally said, look, are you calling me as my bishop? Are you calling me as my neighbor or as, uh, or as my client? And he says, well, you know, what chance will get you down to the clerk's office? (laughs) (laughs) Whichever one's the right answer. Whichever one. So I went down and registered and then, uh, uh, got involved and was on the school board for four years. And that was, um, you know, frankly, eye opening, on a lot of different levels to to work in Ogden School District. And on the one hand, as as especially as you know, Tracy, there are just fabulous, wonderful people in Ogden yeah. School District who have um, you know devoted their lives in, in a very challenging school district. And yet on the other hand, um, it's disturbing and 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 concerning that we have a district that, especially in 2007 kind of time frame, basically had tried every conceivable educational intervention uh, available and really had done almost nothing to reverse the trajectory of low achievement for for students. And so it was um, like I say, it was, it was it was heartening to be involved and see um, see the great people involved, and also very disconcerting at how much work for how little uh, actual uh, movement on the ground was was achieved. So um, that's kind of what got me involved. And then um, in 2011, our superintendent suddenly resigned in August, and. Um, if you've if you've been involved in education, you know that 
August is just about the least opportune time to try to find <laughs> true, a new true. superintendent. Um, literally, that was the Thursday before school started, and um, so I, uh, the school board was willing to take a chance, and uh, whether they're whether I was a damn fool or they were damn fools or we all were, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, uh, they they took a chance on me, and uh, so that's what I did. You know, one of the greatest things about that story is that you come. You know, with a little bit of background about the system, if you will, right? The the model and what people are trying to do to make things work for kids. And you come with this background this that's not in education. You come with this experience that is um, so different. So your view, your lens is is has not been pre-programmed, I guess, right? Because you didn't go through the normal channels to get there. So when you think about that, what were some of the first insights that you had? Because our focus on little things first, right? You don't have to necessarily yeah. have sweeping wide reforms, but when you first moved into that role, what were some of the little things that you thought that were going on that were making a big difference? Um, one of the first things was... Um, and, and this hit me, and, and I know you've both been through the University of Virginia's turnaround school program, and literally the first morning of my first day on the job was our first meeting with uh, University of Virginia folks mm -hmm. uh, coming to our district, and, and you, you know that is a very uh, intense process, and it, it uh, on in one sense kind of bowled me over but it, it um my gut instinct was that um in taking over superintendent was that we needed to empower true leadership and not just um what had been going on in our district for a long long time and so um i wasn't i wasn't sure what that meant in operational terms other than I was pretty confident that there were people in our system who knew very well what we needed to do and we needed to find systemic ways to free them from uh, from all of the constraints to do what they knew needed to be done. Cause I knew I didn't know what needed to be done, but <laughs> I, I thought that I could probably have some success in um, basically being a linebacker and clearing the path for other people who were um, more insightful and smarter than me. And so that was sort of operationally what I, what I thought needed to be done. And what that looked like on the ground was um, initially kind of getting a good sense of, of who, who our leaders are in terms of being able to inspire a staff hmm. and being able to articulate a vision for change and um, rally folks to think about things differently. Um, and from there, then some other things kind of became apparent. Um, for example, um, uh, budgetary things and, and accountability. I, I don't like the word accountability in this context, but accountability um, measures and things like that kind of uh, 
spawned from that. But the leadership was the, the first and most obvious thing to me. Can you think of some bright spots then when you're thinking about leadership? Because you made reference to like inspiring staff and vision for change and, you know, trying to rally others to think differently. So you said you you recognized that there were some leaders that uh, knew what needed to be done and you were trying to create this space for them to be successful. So as a high level leader, because at that superintendency level, you, you, you have some power, but in some ways also you're so far away from the front lines yeah. that, that can be hard, right? So I'm curious, what what were some things at your level that you tried to do to open the, the way, to clear the way, to open the channels for um, some of those things to take place? Um, two things that spring immediately to mind, Tracy. Um First, within the first, literally first three days, um, because our, our prior superintendent had been, uh, his wife, he, he resigned because his wife had been diagnosed with brain cancer um, and, and very sadly passed away within a, uh, a week or two after all this was going on. But he, he had basically been out of commission for the whole summer. And so administrative uh, changes had really not been implemented. And so uh, I think on day two, um, we reassigned literally every single secondary administrator in the entire district. Mm. And, you know, at the time, um, we knew that some changes had to be made. And there were about Four people, I think, we simply took out of the ranks of being administrators who were, um, frankly, ineffective. Um, and so that's one thing. We just had to bite the bullet and make the change. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why you don't, you know, you can always make the case of, well, you don't make a change, you know, on the first day of school because it's just a problem. And, you know, and you don't make a change in midway through the school year and you don't make a change at the end of the school year for some other reason. And, you know, and of course, it just becomes this this reason for never making a change. And so that's one thing is, is my folks made some recommendations and largely because I didn't have any reason not to. I said, fine, let's do it. Let's do it immediately. And I think they were, frankly, a little shocked that there was no pushback at <laughs> yeah. and we pushed it through so that was one big change um the other one that was a, a a bright spot was um and again this is a little counterintuitive for it was counterintuitive for me as i looked around at the the my group of leaders um frankly it it struck me that they all looked like me and um that seemed strange because i think that in a large system that you would really have leaders that all looked like they were all from the same central casting kind of a thing um and so i started carefully looking for um some mechanism to find a different way to identify leaders. And so um, that led us to using uh, behavioral event interviews, 
public impact had uh, some turnaround leader competencies um, that we utilized to do those behavioral event interviews and to really focus on what would a turnaround leader look like and who who fits that profile and who doesn't and getting really tight about what we wanted and that was you know that was a little bit longer term project but um when i started when when that was introduced to me it became apparent that i had two or three people like that around me who then could help me implement that and that was um i think uh one of the uh most important things we did was to implement a very different way of looking at our school level leaders and uh, who they were going to be and what uh, where they were coming from what their training was and and you know it's not that I was uh, I don't believe in tribal politic kind of things um not surprisingly I'm guessing you would think um <laughs> What was quite surprising to me, however, was in seeking people who were possessed of turnaround leader competencies, it actually led to a far more diverse group of leaders leading our schools. And it led to um, us consciously selecting people who looked a lot more like our students, although that was not the criteria we were using to start with, but it, it uh, had that, uh, that effect, which, uh, which was, was, I think, positive. But it, the, the key was we were looking for people who possessed the, the turnaround leader competencies. Right. That's great. So um, I love that notion of getting out of the way kind of a thing, you know, because I think there are lots of barriers to educators doing the kind of work that they need to do. And, um, especially leaders, educational leaders. And, um, I, I really appreciate that about you, that you went in and you knew that you had expertise around you and really cleared the way for them to be able to do what needed to happen. Um, what advice would you give to educational institutions now? Um, I know the concept of um, turnaround has gotten a little bit of criticism and I, mm -hmm. I'm interested to know your thoughts about that. And then, you know, what, what do you think you learned in your service to Ogden and then the state that you would share now with district sure. schools? Um, I would say three things. Number one, um, if, if, if I were back in the system, the, the one thing I brought to the party was on the one hand, I, you know, I, 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 I made no bones. I'm not an educational, uh, leadership expert. I haven't been through that training. I haven't experienced that. There are people who know more about that than I do. And so I would all the time ask why. And sometimes that was um, a little confrontational on my part. And but most of the time it was sincere. Of you know, I don't think I'm 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 not an idiot. <laughs> um, and so if there's reasons why we're doing things, people should be able to tell me. And 
um, and explain it to me and I should be able to absorb it. Um, what I found was uh, it became pretty apparent pretty quickly as I would ask, well, why are we doing that? And and I didn't get a very good answer. And I'd kind of poke around and because, you know, I tend to be a little bit uh, like an attorney and we'll cross-examine <laughs> someone. And um, when the answer wasn't very good, it usually is because we don't have a very good reason for doing what we're doing. And so that became immediately a way of discovering stuff we can stop stop doing. Um, second thing I would say is getting really granular about where we spend money. Mm. Um, one of the best things for me that I did was I created, we had a chart, they call it the chart of many colors. <laughs> um, and, and we had to print it up on 11 by 17 paper. And it was basically by school, each of the separate funds how much are we spending per pupil by school? So, for example, on transportation or on school lunch or on uh, uh, school counselors or or uh, counseling-related services. And, and per pupil by school, and all of a sudden I could see that while a school that's making stunning growth has this anomalous expenditure, what's going on there? Or a school that's completely... Uh, flat is has some other anomaly in their expenditures, and all of a sudden you could start to pick out patterns, and um, and it was all on one sheet of paper, and I could kind of look at that, and uh, and that was a terrific guide of both helping look at with principles how are you spending your money and what are you doing. And what can I do to clear administrative roadblocks and, and make it so you can do what you need to do as a principal, uh, but also helping the principal um, maybe see their way through the thicket of difficulties that they have of picking out what's really important. And the third thing is, like I say, uh, uh, it really is a faith-based thing, if I can use that term. Um in every system, there are people who absolutely know exactly what needs to be done. Mm. The key for leadership is figuring out who they are and what you can do to light them up so that they're freed from constraints to do the work that needs to be done. Because the, the notion of a heroic leader is a complete myth. That That's just silly. Uh, it's people who are who are... I don't like the line, the phrase in the trenches, because it makes me think of stagnant World War One. <laughs> um, but uh, people who are on the front lines who are doing the real work day in and day out, they know what they need and finding a way to excite them and to facilitate their communication about what's meaningful um, and, and in a way that you can light them up uh, administratively, that's that's the most important work a principal or a district leader can do. And of course, what ends up happening is you're sucked up with all of the minutia of, uh, of running a system rather than the important work of, of making those people able to function. Mm. Yeah. Brad, I wanted to go back just a little bit to your, you know, referring to the why. And mm -hmm. you talked about how maybe that, could have felt like a cross-examination, but I, 
But I actually think there's a, there's a lot of beauty there because I think it is a little thing that all of us can do to help us sort of stay true to the path. And mm -hmm. I find myself, and I try to share this with staff, right? When we can come up with the why and we have good evidence or good reason to believe, right, that there's yeah. a decision we have to make, uh, then then we need to do it, right? And it may not be what others think we should do, or it might not be what's been traditional, or it might not be uh, what's been expected out of our school plan or something. I guess my point is, I love that question why, because it continually asks us to reflect on the, on the tasks that we're doing. And it's not a very big sweeping, you know, change, so to speak, but by asking why and being open to the responses. And as long as people know that if they've given thought to it and can kind of make a compelling case, then let's do it. Let's go for it. Because I think sometimes we do things because we're supposed to, but that might not always be the right thing that needs to be Absolutely. done at that time. Absolutely right. And, and I would see that over and over again at the state level and at the district level. I'd ask, well, why are we doing that? And, and all the time I would get a response, well, applicable regulations require us to do it that way. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't, there's one that just struck me as so counterintuitive that a regulation would require something. And I can't think of what the specifics were, um, but typical attorney, I said, you know, I finally told, you know, I want to actually see the regulation. I actually read that kind of thing. So get me the regulation and let's see if it really says that, because it just strikes me that that's not, uh, I, I couldn't imagine that that's what would be in a regulation. And well, lo and behold, uh, there was a boatload of discretion built within the regulation, but we had uh, over, over time, all of this accrued, uh, wisdom about how we do things had built up around it in a way that it completely calcified our ability to react and all of a sudden well that's how we do it mm -hmm. uh, and there was no reason in you know in Ogden's case in many instances things we were doing were were we knew were contrary to the needs of students and yet we couldn't see our way clear to ditching the the uh, the, the ineffective, uh, process. And so that's, uh, that is the one thing I will say that I think I brought to the party that hadn't been there before mm -hmm. was I didn't know what was, what was protocol and what wasn't. And so I didn't feel any fealty to any particular way of doing anything. And, um, and I was just ignorant enough that, uh, you know, a strange combination of not knowing very much and knowing just enough maybe to ask <coughs> a, a half-decent question um, and being able to kind of poke around at things. And that's, uh, I think that, uh, and people knew they had to teach me. And so there was uh, uh, an actually an openness, I think, on people's part to be willing to illustrate things for me. And, and that... Uh, uh, that led to a lot of, uh, I think, uh, some very fruitful discussions and very fruitful changes of how we did things, uh, because people knew there was no, uh, there's no judgment on my part. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Reminds me of a story of a woman who was cooking ham and she'd always cut the ends off. Yeah. And, you know, the, someone said, why do you do that? She asked grandma, why do we do this? And it turns out grandma just had a short pan and couldn't fit the whole <laughs> ham in it. So all that good I've, ham just kept getting set aside. <laughs> I've, I've heard that exact story before. And that is, uh, there is so much that we do that is just like yeah. that. Why do we do that? Oh, because that's how we've always yeah. done it. And we just had a short pan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Brad, if you had to boil down some of your experiences into some little things, because that is the theme of our podcast, what four or five, it doesn't even have to be that many little things, might you recommend that schools start with? So, you know, if you're a teacher in a classroom or a principal and maybe don't have the kind of ability to... Oh, go ahead. Number one, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Oh, that's great. Um, I would say number one is in my mind not a little thing but but it is a little thing in terms of practice and whether you're a teacher a classroom teacher a teacher's aide a principal or a superintendent getting really straight in your own mind about why am i here today (laughs) what's my purpose today um you know, we, we, we trippingly roll off our tongue the notion that, well, we're doing this for students. Um, getting really tight about what our purpose is. That's, that's a little thing. In my mind, um, when I saw people kind of turn a corner, it often pivoted on suddenly their, their inner purpose could be lit up in a way that, um, that was critical. And, and, as a, as a building administrator or as a, a teacher leader, being able to get other people to light up in that way, that's a little thing that, that is empowering everybody. So that would be one thing I would do. Excellent. Um, a second little thing is um, looking Again, if I were running a school or running a district, looking at all of the ways in which we expend money and trying to get really granular about it, whether that's as a school or as a district, and trying to be um, really granular, you know, how much are you spending for, uh, you know, student transportation or for, uh, reading assistance or, you know, whatever, whatever the program is and getting really specific about what are we spending money on and what's the evidence that it, that it, that it works. Mm -hmm. And if it does, why aren't we doing more of it? And if it doesn't, why aren't we doing less of it? Um, And that forces you to get really specific about how you're measuring effectiveness and, um, in my mind, um, it's not about, like I said, I don't really care for the word accountability in this context. If I'm a teacher, if I'm a building level person, if I'm a superintendent, what I want is not people who I hold accountable. I want people who feel responsible. Mm. And when I had leaders who felt their own sense of responsibility that's when I saw powerful, um, dramatic changes because they didn't need to wait for me to give them the go-ahead. 
They didn't need to wait for my ideas. They were, they were running, um, you know, and I can think of individual people. They were, as soon as they felt empowered and felt responsible, they did all the work and I didn't have to think about it anymore at all. Um, and so that would be a, a second thing. A third thing is um, probably just um, recognizing that as, as a leader, you, you do have a, a needle in a haystack kind of a proposition, which is figuring out how do I empower people in my system um, because there are people, it's not everybody, but there are people in your system who know exactly what needs to be done. They know exactly how to hit the target. Um, but for whatever reason, they've been disempowered by, by process, by bureaucrat, by bureaucratic stuff. Um, and how do we empower them uh, and uh, locate who they are, see what they are, and recognize them. And that's, uh, boy, if you can figure that out on any given day, you've, you've got the, that's the secret sauce, if there is any. Mm. That's great. So, Here's those it. three things. That's excellent. Thank you. Here's our typical end of time question. <laughs> so if you could go back in time and... You know, maybe that period of time right before you became superintendent of, of the school district or of the state. What would you tell your younger self? You know, to be honest, I think I would tell myself to not leave the school district and to go down to the state. <laughs> <laughs> um, simply because at this district level, a district superintendent and district folks, um, especially in Utah, have it in their power to really manage all of the change. At the state level, um, the ability to really manage change is so diffuse. Um, that would be one thing I would tell my younger self to get really a grip on that I didn't have a grip on of, you know, what we did at the district, you're not going to be able to do at the state. Um, because I, the state, frankly, was a somewhat disappointing experience for me, particularly compared to what I think uh, people were able to do in Ogden. So that would be one thing. A second thing would be um, to get really tight about articulating what are the state-level policies that we could implement that would meaningfully affect change. Because holy cow, there's a lot that goes on at the state that doesn't do one damn thing to change outcomes for students. Um, and if we could somehow find a way to just ignore that stuff. Um, and, you know, it, it, even though I don't think at that point I was a, an uninformed person, uh, nevertheless, I was not as tight as I could and should have been about what are the meaningful state-level policies that we could engage in to support better outcomes for kids. Sure, I, I can see that. And I think actually all leaders um, have that, you know, that challenge ahead of them, you know, asking over yeah. and over again, what matters? What matters? Yeah. 
Yeah. Good. You know, and on any given day, picking what, I mean, that's, that's, it's difficult, but, um, being, you know, again, there are people at the state office and there are people at, um, at the universities and others who absolutely know exactly what needs to be done. Um, and yet, you know, we spend a lot of time just dealing with, with, frivolous things that that don't amount to a hill of beans for kids um but soak up 70 80 90 percent of our uh administrative bandwidth in a way that you know that's that's regrettable because we could do so much more and so much better um and there are other states that have have kind of hit that stride and really are pulling away from the others very good hmm. So interesting. So fascinating. It's so great to talk to you. I wish we had more time. Um, thank you, Brad, for taking time to visit with us and share some of your expertise. And Thank you all. And thank you all for doing this. You know, you're two of the most gifted and articulate and intelligent leaders. And I'm so grateful you're in our system. Oh, thank you thank so much. Thank you so much. And we appreciate all you've done for kids in the state of Utah. You've worked well, hard. Well, thank you. Thank you much. Okay. All right. Take Bye-bye. care. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye.